Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Today I'm speaking with Jeff Hawkins. Jeff is the co-founder of Numenta, a neuroscience research company, and also the founder of the Redwood Neuroscience Institute. And before that, he was one of the founders of the field of handheld computing, starting Palm and Handspring. He's also a member of the National Academy of Engineering, and he's the author of two books. The first is On Intelligence, and the second and most recent is A Thousand Brains, A New Theory of Intelligence. And Jeff and I talk about intelligence from a few different sides here. We start with the brain. We talk about how the cortex creates models of the world, the role of prediction in experience. We discuss the idea that thought is analogous to movement in conceptual space. But for the bulk of the conversation, we have a debate about the future of artificial intelligence, and in particular, the alignment problem and the prospect that AI could pose some kind of existential risk to us. As you'll hear, Jeff and I have very different takes on that problem. Our intuitions divide fairly sharply. And as a consequence, we have a very spirited exchange. Anyway, it was a lot of fun. I hope you enjoy it. And now I bring you Jeff Hawkins. I am here with Jeff Hawkins. Jeff, thanks for joining me. Uh, thanks for having me, Sam. It's a pleasure. I think we met probably just once, but I feel like we met about 15 years ago at um, one of those Beyond Belief conferences at the Salk Institute. Does that ring a bell? You know, I was at one of the Beyond Belief conferences, and I don't recall meeting you there, but it's totally possible. And I just... Yeah, it's possible we didn't meet, but I, just, I remember, I think we had an exchange where, you know, one of us was in the audience and the other was, I mean, so we had an ex exchange over... 50 feet or whatever. Yeah. Oh, that, that uh, makes sense. Yeah. I yeah. was in the audience and, and I was speaking up. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And I was, I was probably on stage defending some cockamamie conviction. Uh, well, anyway, nice to, to almost meet you once again. And uh, you have a new book, which uh, we'll cover part of, not in, by no means exhausting its topics of interest, but the, the new book is A Thousand Brains. And um, it's a work of neuroscience and also a discussion about the uh, the frontiers of AI and where all this is, is heading. But maybe we should start with the, the brain part of it and, and start with the really novel and circuitous and entrepreneurial route you've taken to get into neuroscience. This is the, the non-standard course to becoming a neuroscientist. Give us your, your um, brief biography here. How did you get into these topics? Well, I, I, I fell in love with, uh, with brains when I was just got out of college. So I studied electrical engineering in college. And right after I started my first job at Intel, I, I read an article by Francis Crick uh, about brains and how we don't understand their work. And, and I just became enamored. I said, oh, my God, we should understand this. This is me. I am my brain. And, and I, no one seems to know how this thing is working. And I just couldn't accept that. And so I decided to uh, dedicate my life to figuring out what's going on when I'm thinking and, and how we, you know, who we are basically as a species. And it was a difficult path. So I, I quit my job. I, I essentially applied to, uh, 
to become a graduate student first in, at MIT in AI, but then I, I settled at uh, Berkeley in neuroscience. And I said, okay, I'm going to, you know, we're going to spend my life figuring out how the, the neocortex works. And I found out very quickly that that was a very diff, not difficult thing to do scientifically, but difficult to do from a from the practical aspects of science, that you couldn't get funding for that. It was considered too ambitious. You know, it was theoretical work, and people didn't fund theoretical work. So after a couple of years as a graduate student at Berkeley, I set a different path. I said, okay, I'm going to go back to work in industry for, for a few years to mature, to uh, figure out how to make institutional change, because I was up against an institutional problem, not just a scientific problem. And that turned into a series of successful businesses that I was involved with and started, including Palm and Handspring. These are some of the early uh, handheld computing companies. And we were having a tremendous amount of success with that. And it was, but it was never my mission to, to stay in the handheld computing industry. I wanted to get back to neuroscience, and everybody who worked for me knew this. Mm-hmm. In fact, it was, it was a, you know, I told the investors, I'm only going to do this for four years. And they said, what? <laughs> I said, yeah, that's what it. But it turned out to be a lot longer than that because all the success we had. But eventually, I just, I just ex- extracted myself from it. And I said, I, I'm going to go. And I have so many years left in my life. So after having all that success in the mobile computing space, I started a neuroscience institute. This is at the recommendation of some neuroscience friends of mine. So they helped me do that. And I ran that for three years. And now I've been running sort of a private lab, just doing pure neuroscience for the last 17 years. That's, that's Numenta, right? That's, that's Numenta. Yeah, mm. and 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 uh, we've made some really significant progress in our in our goals, and the book uh, documents some of the recent really significant uh, discoveries we've made. So, am I right in thinking that you made enough money at Palm and Handspring that you could self fund your first neuroscience institute, or did you, or is that not the case? Did you have to go raise it, money? It was it, well, it was a bit of both. It was certainly I was a, a major contributor. I wasn't the only one. But I didn't want the funding to be the driver of what we did and how we spent all our time. So at the Institute, we had, uh, we had collaborations with both Berkeley and Stanford. We didn't get funds from them, but we did uh, work with them on various things. And then we had, but it was, that was mostly funded by myself. Numenta is uh, still, I'm a major contributor to it, but there are other people who've invested in Numenta. And, uh, we have one outside venture capitalist. But and uh, several people, but I'm still a, a major contributor to it. I don't. I just view that as a, a sort of a necessary thing to get onto the science and not have to worry about it. Yeah. Because when I was at Berkeley, what I was told over and over again, and I, I really came to understand this. In fact, uh, I I went and eventually I after that when I was running the, uh, the Redwood Neuroscience Institute, I went to Washington to talk about to the National Science Foundation and the National Institute of Health and also to uh, DARPA who were the funders of neuroscience. And everyone thought what we were doing, which is sort of big theory, uh, large-scale theories of neocortical function, that this was like the most important problem to work on. But everyone said they can't fund it for various reasons. And, and so I've, over the years, I've come to appreciate there's, there's very difficult to, to be a scientist doing what we do uh, with traditional funding sources. But that, we, don't work out, we don't work outside of science. We, you know, we partner with labs and we go to conferences and we publish papers. We do all the regular stuff. Right, right. Yeah, it's amazing how much comes down to funding or lack of funding and and the incentives that would dictate whether something gets funded in the first place. It's really, um, it's by no means a perfect system. This is a, it's a kind of an intellectual market failure. Yeah, it is fascinating. And we could have a whole conversation about that sometimes, perhaps. 
because I asked myself, why is it so hard? What, why the people can't fund this? And, and there's reasons for it. And it's a complex, strange thing when people were telling me this is the most important thing anyone could be working on. And we think your approaches are great, but we can't fund that. And, mm. you know, why is that? You know, but it's, it's you know, I, I just accepted the way it was. I said, okay, this is the world I'm living in. I'm going to get one chance here. If I can't do this through like, you know, being, um, you know, working my way as a graduate student to getting a position at a university, how am I going to do it? And I said, okay, it's not what I thought, but this is what's going to be. Mm. Nice. Well, um, let's jump into the, the neuroscience side of it. Generally speaking, we're going to be talking about intelligence and uh, how it's accomplished in physical systems. So let's, let's start with a, a definition, however loose. What is intelligence in your view? So I didn't know and didn't have any pre-ideas about what this would be. It was a mystery to me. And, but we've learned what a good portion of your brain is doing. And so we started the neocortex, which is about 70% of the volume of a human brain. And I now know what that does. And so I'm going to take that as my definition for intelligence here. What's going on in your neocortex is it's learning a model of the world, an internal recreation of all the things in the world that you know of. And how it does, that's the key in what we've discovered. But it's this internal model. And intelligence is, requires having an internal model of the world in your head. And it allows you to recognize where you are. It allows you to act on things. It allows you to plan and think about the future. So if I'm going to say, what, are, what happens when I do this? The model tells you that. So to me, intelligence is just about having a model in your head and using that for planning and action. It's not about doing anything particular. It's about understanding the world. Yeah, that's interesting. I think most people would, that's kind of an, an internal definition of intelligence, but I think most people would reach for a, an external one or a, you know, kind of a, a functional one that has to take in the environment. I mean, something about being able to flexibly meet your goals under a range of conditions, you know, more flexibly than rigidly. I guess there's, there are, you know, rigid forms of intelligence, but when we're talking about anything like general intelligence, we're talking about something that is, that is not merely hardwired and reflexive, but flexible. Well, yes, but if, you, yeah. but if you have an internal model of the world, you had to learn it. I mean, at least from a human point of view, there's some things we have built in when we're born. But the vast majority of what you and I know, Sam, is, is learned. You know, we didn't know what a computer was when you're born. You don't know what a coffee cup is. You don't know what, you know, a building is. You don't know what doors are. You don't know what computer codes are. None of this stuff. Everything that, almost everything we interact with in the world today, uh, in language, we don't know any particular language when we're born. Uh, we don't know mathematics. So we had to learn all these things. So if you want to say there might be an internal model that wasn't learned, well, that's pretty trivial. Yeah. But I'm talking about models that are learned, and you have to interact with the world to learn it. You can't learn it without being present in the world, without having an embodiment, without moving about, touching and seeing and hearing things. So a large part of what people think about, like you brought up, is, okay, you know, we are able to solve a goal. But that's, that's what a model lets you to do. It's not the, that is not what intelligence itself is. Intelligence is having this ability to solve any goal. Right, because you have a, if your model uh, uh, covers that part of the world, you can figure out how to manipulate that part of the world and achieve what you want. So it's it's a I'll give you a little further analogy. It's a little bit like computers. When we talk about like a universal Turing machine or what a computer is, it's not defined by what the computer is applied to do. 
It's like a computer isn't something that solves a particular problem. A computer is mm. something that works on a set of principles. And that's how I think about intelligence. It's, it's, a, it's a modeling system that works on a set of principles. Those principles can exist in a mouse and a dog and a cat and a human and, and probably birds. But it, it, don't focus on what those animals are doing. Mm. Yeah, I think it's important to point out that a model need not be a conscious model. In fact, most of our models are not conscious and might not even be, in principle, available to consciousness. Although I think at the boundary, something that that you you'd say is is happening entirely in the dark does have a kind of, or can have a kind of liminal, conscious a- aspect. So I mean, to take you know the coffee cup example. This leads us into a, a more granular discussion of, of what it means to have a model of anything at, at the level of the, the cortex. But you know, if, if I reach for my coffee cup and grasp it, the ordinary experience of doing that is something I'm conscious of. I'm not conscious of all of the prediction that is built into my accomplishing that and experiencing what I experience when I touch a coffee cup. And and yet it's prediction that is required having some ongoing expectation of what's going to happen there when i when i you know when each finger touches the the surface of the cup that allows for me to detect any error there or to be surprised by something truly anomalous so if i reach for a coffee cup and it turns out that's a you know it's a hologram of a coffee cup and my my hand passes right through it the element of surprise there seems predicated on some ongoing prediction processing to which the the results of my behavior is being compared. So maybe you can talk about what you mean by by having a model at the level of the cortex yeah. and, and how, how prediction is uh, built into that. Yeah. Well, my, my first book, which I published like 14 years ago called On Intelligence, was just about that right. topic. It was about how it is the brain is making all these predictions all the time and all your sensory modalities, and you're not aware of it. And so that's sort of the foundation. And you can't make a prediction without a model. I mean, a model, to make a prediction, you had to have some expectation. The expectation, whether you're not aware of it or not, but you have an expectation. And that has to be driven from some internal representation of the world that says, hey, this, you're about to touch this thing. I know what it is. It's supposed to feel this way. And even if you're not aware that you're, you're doing that. One of the um, key discoveries we made, and this was maybe about eight years ago, we, we had to get to the bottom, like, how do neurons make predictions? How do they, what is the physical manifestation of a prediction in the brain? And most of these predictions, as you point out, are not conscious. You're not aware of them. They're just happening. And if something, if something is wrong, then your attention is drawn to it. So if you felt the coffee cup and there was a little burr on the side or a crack, and you didn't know that was expected that, you'd say, oh, there's a crack. Well, you know, but well, what was the brain doing when it was making that prediction? And we have, um, we have a theory about this, and I wrote about it in the book a bit. And it's, it's a beautiful, um, I think it's a beautiful theory, um, but it, it's, it's basically most of the predictions that are going on in your brain, most of them, not all of them, but most of them, happen inside individual neurons. They are, it is a internal to the individual neurons. Now, not a single neuron can predict something, but an ensemble of neurons do this. But it's an internal state, and we, have a, we wrote a paper that came out in 2016, which is it's called Why Do Neurons Have So Many Synapses? And um, we, what we posit in that paper, and I'm pretty sure this is correct, is that you know, neurons have these thousands of synapses. 
most of those synapses are being used for prediction. And when a neuron recognizes a pattern and says, okay, I'm supposed to be active soon. I should be, I should be becoming active soon. If everything is according to our model here, I should be becoming active soon. And it goes into this internal state. The neuron itself is saying, okay, I'm expecting to become active. And you can't detect that consciously. It's internal to the, it's, it's essentially just a depolarization or a change of the voltage of the neuron. And so when, uh, but it, 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 we showed how the network of these neurons, what'll happen is if your prediction is correct, then a, a small subset of the neurons become active. But if the prediction is incorrect, a whole bunch of neurons become active at the same time. And then that draws your attention to the problem. So it's a fascinating problem, but most of the predictions going on in your brain are not accessible outside of individual neurons. So there's no way you could be conscious about it. Mm. I guess most people are familiar with the, the general anatomy of a neuron where you have a, this spindly looking thing where um, there's a cell body and there's a long process, the axon leading away, uh, which carries the action potential if, if that neuron fires to the synapse and, and communicates neurotransmitters to other neurons. But on the other side of, the, in, in, the, in the standard case, on the, on the other side of the cell body, there's this really, often really profuse arborization of dendrites, which is kind of the mad tangle of processes, which receive information from other neurons to which this, this neuron is connected. And it's the integration of information on that side, but you know, before that neuron fires, that change the probability of its firing, that um, that's the place you are locating this the full set of predictive changes or the full set of changes that constitute prediction in the case of a system of neurons. Yeah. Well, it was for, essentially for many years, people looked at those, the connections the, on the dendrites, on that bushy part called synapses. And, and when they activated a synapse, most of the synapses were so far from the cell body that they didn't really have much of an effect. They didn't seem like they could make anything happen. And so, but there are thousands and thousands of them out there, but they don't seem powerful enough to make anything occur. And what was discovered basically over the last 20 years, that there are, there's a second type of spike. So you mentioned the one that goes down the axon, that's the action potential, but there are spikes that travel along the dendrites. And so yeah. basically what, what happens is the individual sections of the dendrite, like little branches of this tree, each one of them can recognize patterns on their own. They, they can recognize hundreds of separate patterns on these different branches. And they can cause this spike to travel along the dendrite. And that lowers uh, the, uh, changes the voltage of the cell body a little bit. And that is the, what we call the predictive state. The cell is like prime. It says, oh, I, I'm, if I fire, I'm ready to fire. And it's not actually a probability change. It's the timing. And so a cell that's in this predictive state that says, I think I should be firing now, uh, or very shortly, if it does generate the regular spike, the action potential, it does it a little bit sooner than it would have otherwise. And mm. it's the timing that is the key to making the whole circuit work. We're getting pretty down in the weeds here about yeah, neuroscience. Yeah, I, hope, no. I don't know if you're, all your readers or your listeners will appreciate that. Yeah, no, I think it's useful, though. More weeds here. But, I mean, one of the novel things about your argument is that um, it was inspired by some much earlier theorizing. You, you mark your debt to uh, Vernon Mountcastle, but the idea is that there's a, 
a common algorithm operating more or less everywhere at the level of the cortex. That is, it's more or less that you know, the cortex is doing essentially the same thing, whether it's producing uh, language or vision or you know, any, any other sensory channel or motor behavior. So talk about the, the general principle that um, you spend a lot of time on in the book of just the organization of the, of the neocortex into cortical columns and the implications this has for um, just how we view what the brain is doing in terms of sensory and, and motor learning and you know, all of its, its consequences. This is, uh, Vernon Mountcastle made this proposal back in the 70s, and it, it's just a dramatic idea, and it's an incredible idea, and so incredible that some people just refuse to believe it, but other people really think it's a, a tremendous discovery. But what he noticed was if you look at the neocortex, if you could take one out of your head or out of a human's head, it, it's like a sheet it's about two and a half millimeters thick. It is about the size of a large dinner napkin or 1,500 square centimeters. Um, and if you could fold it, lay it flat. And the different parts of it, like that do different things. There's parts that do vision, there's parts that do language, and parts that do hearing, and so on. But when you, if you cut into it and you look at the, the structure in any one of these areas, it's very complicated. It, there are dozens of different cell types, they're, but they're very prototypically connected and they're, they're arranged in certain patterns and layers and different types of things. So it's a, very, it's a very complex structure, but it's almost the same everywhere. It's not the same everywhere, but almost the same everywhere. And so this is not just true in a human neocortex, but if you look at a rat's neocortex or a dog's neocortex or a cat or a monkey, this same basic structure is there. And what Vernon Malcastle said is that all the parts of the neocortex are actually, we think of them as doing thing, different things, but they're actually all doing some fundamental algorithm, which is the same. So hearing and touch and vision are really the same thing. He says, if you took part of the cortex and you hook it up to your eyes, you'll get vision. If you hook it up to your ears, you'll get hearing. If you hook it up to other parts of the neocortex, you'll get language. And so he, he spent many years giving the evidence for this. He proposed further that this algorithm was contained in what's called a column. And so if you would take a, a small area of this neocortex, remember it's like, it's like two, mil, two and a half millimeters thick, you take a very sort of skinny little one millimeter column out of it, that that is the processing element. And so our human neocortex, we have about 150,000 of these columns. Other animals have more or less. People should picture something resembling a grain of rice in terms of scale here. Yeah, yeah. I sometimes say take a piece of skinny spaghetti, like, you know, angel hair pasta or something like that, mm. and cut it into two little two and a half millimeter lengths and stack them side by side. Now, the funny thing about columns is you can't see them. They're not visual things. You can't look under a microscope. You won't see it. But he, he pointed out why, uh, why, the, why they're there. They're, it has to do with why, how they're connected. So they're all the cells in one of these little millimeter pieces of rice or spaghetti, if you will, are all processing the same thing. And the next piece of rice over processing something different and the next piece of rice over processing something different. And so he didn't know what was going on in the cortical column. He, he articulated the architecture. He talked about the evidence that this exists. He said, here's the evidence why these things are all doing the same thing. And, uh, but he didn't know what, what it was. And it's kind of hard to imagine what it is that this algorithm could be doing. But that was essentially the core of our research. That's what we've been focused on for close to 20 years. 
So it's also hard to imagine the, the microanatomy here, because in each one of these little columns, there's something like 150,000 neurons on average. And if you could just unravel all of the connections there, um, you know, the, the tiny filaments of, of uh, nerve endings, what you'd have there is on the order of kilometers in length, you know, all wound up into that tiny structure. So it's, this is a, a strange juxtaposition of simplicity and complexity, but it's, it, it, there's certainly a, a mad tangle of processes in there. Yeah. This is why brains are so hard to study. You know, if you look at another organ in the body, whether it's the, the heart or the liver or something like that, and you take a little section of it, it's pretty uniform. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's, you know, yeah. But here, if you take a teeny piece of the teeny, teeny piece of the cortex, it's got this incredible complexity in it, which is not just a, it's not random. It's, it's, it's very specific. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's hard to get wrap your heads around how complex it is. But we need it to be complex because what we do as humans is extremely complex. And, you know, we, we shouldn't be fooled that we're just a bunch of neurons that are doing some mass action. No, there's a very complex processing going on and, um, in your brain that it's, it's not just a blob of neurons that are pulsating. You know? mm. <laughs> very detailed um, mechanisms that are undergoing it. And we figured out what some of those are. So um, describe to me what you mean by this phrase a reference frame. What, what does that mean at the level of the cortex and, and cortical columns? Yeah. So you're, we're jumping to the end point because that's not where we started. We were trying to figure out how cortical columns work. Mm. And what we realized is that they're little modeling engines. They, each one of these cortical columns is able to build a model of its input. And that model is what we would call a sensory motor model. That is, you, it's getting input. Let's assume it's getting input from your finger, right? A tip of your finger. One of the columns is getting input from the tip of your finger. And as your finger moves and touches something, the input changes. But it's not just sufficient to how the input changes. For you to build a model of the object you're touching, and I use the coffee cup example quite a bit because that's how we did it. If you move your finger over the coffee cup and you're not even looking at the coffee cup, you could learn a model of the coffee cup. You could feel like, you know, just with one finger, you could feel like, oh, what, this is what its shape is. But to do that, your brain, that cortical column, your brain as a whole, but that cortical column individually has to know something about where your finger is relative to the cup. It's not just a changing pattern that's coming in. It has to know how your finger's moving and where your finger is as it touches it. So uh, the idea of a reference frame is a way of noting a location. You have to have a location signal. You have to have some knowledge about where things are in the world relative to other things. In this case, where's your finger relative to the object you're trying to touch, the coffee cup? And we realized that for you to, your brain to make a prediction of what you're going to feel when you touch the edge of the cup. And again, you mentioned earlier, you're not conscious of this. You'd reach the cup and you just, but your brain's predicting what all your fingers are going to feel. It needs to know where the finger's going to be. And it has to know what the object is. It's a cup and it needs to know where it's going to be. And that requires a reference frame. A reference frame is just a way of noting a location. It's saying, relative to this cup, your finger is over here, not over there, not on the handle, you know, up at the top, whatever it is. And, and this is a deduced property. We can say for certainty that this has to exist. You, if your finger is going to make a prediction when it reaches and touches the coffee cup, it needs to know where the finger is. That, that location has to be relative to the cup. So we can just say for certainty that there need to be reference frames in the brain. And this is not a, a controversial idea. What we, perhaps is novel, is that we realize that these reference frames exist in every cortical column. 
And it's the structure of knowledge. It applies to not just what your finger feels on a coffee cup and what you see when you look at it, but also how you arrange all your knowledge in the world hmm. is stored in these reference frames. And so when uh, this, we're jumping ahead here, many steps, but when we think and when we posit, when we try to you know, reason in our head, when even my language right now is, is where my, the neurons are walking through locations and reference frames, recalling the information stored there. And that's what comes into your head, or that's what you say. So it, it becomes the core reference. The reference frame becomes the core structure for the entire, everything you do. It's the knowledge about the world is in these reference frames. Yeah, you, you make a strong claim about the, the primacy of motion, right? Because there's, everyone knows that there's part of the cortex devoted to motor action. We refer to it as, as the motor cortex and distinguish it from sensory cortex in that way. But it's also true that other regions of the cortex and, and perhaps every region of the cortex does have some connection to lower structures that can affect motion, right? So it's not, it, it's not that it's just motor cortex that's in the, in the motion game. And by analogy or by direct implication, you think of thought as itself being a kind of movement in conceptual space, right? So there's a mapping of the the sensory world that can really only be accomplished by acting on it, you know, and, and therefore moving, right? So you, the, yeah. the only way to map the cup, you know, is to touch it with your fingers in the end. There is a, an analogous kind of motion in conceptual space and, you know, even, you know, abstract ideas like, I think some of the examples you give in the book are like, you know, democracy, right? You know, or, yeah. or money or what, it's just how, how we understand these things. So let's go back to the first thing you said there. The idea that there's motor cortex and sensory cortex is, is sort of no longer considered right. Uh, as you mentioned, we, the neurons that in these cortical columns, there are certain neurons that are the motor output neurons. These are in a particular layer five, as they're called. And so in the motor cortex, they were really big and they project to the spinal cord and say, oh, that's how you move your fingers. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the neurons, uh, the, the columns in the visual cortex, the parts that get input from the eyes, they have these same layer five cells. And these cells project to a part of the brain called the superior colliculus, which is what controls eye motion. So this goes against the original idea that, oh, there's sensory cortex and motor cortex. No one believes that. Well, I don't know nobody, but very few people believe that anymore. It's, as far as we know, every part of the cortex has a motor output. And so every part of the cortex is getting some sort of input and it having some motor output. And so the basic algorithm of cortex is a sensory motor system. It's not, it's not divided. It's not like we have sensory areas and, and motor areas. As far as we know, ever it's been seen, there's these, these motor cells everywhere. So we, we can put that aside. Now, I can very, very clearly walk you through and, and in some sense prove from, from logic that when you're learning what a coffee cup feels like, and I could even do this for vision, that you have to have this idea of a reference frame, that you know, the finger, you have to know where your finger is relative to the cup, and that's how you build a model of it. And so we can build out this cortical column that explains how it, how it does that. How do, your, how do your parts of your cortex representing your fingers are able to learn the structure of a coffee cup? Now, Mountcastle, go back to him, he said, look, it's the same algorithm everywhere. And he says, it looks the same everywhere. So it's the same algorithm everywhere. So that's just sort of say, hmm, well, if I'm thinking about something that doesn't seem like a sensory motor system, like I'm not touching something or looking, I'm just thinking about something. That would, if, if Mountcastle was right, 
then the same basic algorithm would be applying there. So that was one constraint. Like, well, that, you know, and, and the evidence is that Malkas was right. I mean, the, the, the physical evidence suggests he's right. We just, it just seems a little bit odd to think like, well, well, how is language like this? And how is mathematics like, you know, touching a coffee cup? But then we realize that, that it's just reference frames are a way of storing everything. And and in the way we move through a reference frame, it's like, how do you move from one location? How do the neurons activate one location after another location after another location? We do that to this idea of movement. If I'm, so I'm moving, if I want to access the locations on a coffee cup, I move my finger. But the same concept could apply to mathematics or to politics, but you're not actually physically moving something, but you're still walking through a structure. A good, a good bridge example is if I say to you, you know, imagine your house, and you know, I ask you to walk, you know, tell me about your house. What you'll do is you'll mentally imagine walking through your house. It won't be random. You just won't have random thoughts come to your head. But you will mentally imagine walking through your house, and as you walk through your house, you'll recall what is supposed to be seen in different directions. You can say, oh, I'll walk in the front door, and I'll look to the right. What do I see? I'll look to the left. What do I see? This is sort of a, an example you could relate it to something physically you could move to, but that's pretty much what's going on when you're thinking about anything. If you're thinking about your podcast and how you get more subscribers, you have a model of that in your head, and you're, you, are test, you are trying it out, thinking about different aspects by literally invoking these different locations and reference frames. And so that's sort of the core of all knowledge. Yeah, it's interesting. I guess to, back to Mountcastle for a second, one piece of evidence in favor of this view of a common cortical algorithm is, is the fact that adjacent areas of cortex can be appropriated by you know, various functions. You know, you know, if you, you know, lose your vision, say, you know, you know, classical visual cortex can be appropriated by other senses. And there's this plasticity that can ignore some of the previous boundaries between separate senses in the cortex. Yeah, that's right. There's this tremendous plasticity, and, and you can also recover from various sorts of trauma and so on. I mean, there's some rewiring that has to occur, but the, it does show that that whatever's going, whatever the circuitry in the visual cortex was, you know, quote, if you were a sighted person, what, what it would do. If you're not a sighted person, well, it'll just do something else. Mm. <laughs> and so it's not, and, it, and so that is a very, very strong argument for that. There's a famous scientist, um, Bakarita, who did an experiment where he, I'm trying to remember the animal he used, um, maybe you recall it. But anyway, um, it'll come to me. A ferret, I think it was a ferret. Mm. We took the, they took a, before the animal's born, he took the optic nerve and ran it over to one part of the, a different part of the neocortex and he took the auditory nerve and ran it to a different part of the neocortex. You know? right, <laughs> he basically right. rewired the animal. I'm not sure we do these experiments today, but, and, you know, and, and the argument was that the animals, you know, still saw and still heard and so on, maybe not as well as a, an unaltered one, but the evidence was that, yeah, that really works. Yeah. yeah so, so what is genetically determined? And what is learned here? I mean, it seems that the genetics, at minimum, are, are determining what is hooked up to what initially, right? You know, barring yeah, that was roughly, yeah. roughly. That's right. I think you know, like where do the eyes, the optic nerve from the eyes, where do they project, and where do the regions that get the input from the eyes, where do they project? And so, this rough sort of overall architecture is is specified. And as we just talked through trauma and other reasons, sometimes that architecture can get re rewired. I think also the, the, the basic algorithm that goes on in each of these cortical columns, the, the circuitry in the, in, inside the neocortex is pretty well determined by, by genetics. And 
In fact, what one of Myocast's arguments was that humans, the human neocortex got large, and we have a very large one relative to our body size, just because all it had to, all evolution had to do was discover, just make more copies of these columns. You know, you don't have to, you don't have to do anything new, just make more copies. And that's something easy for genes to specify. Hmm. And so human brains got large quickly in evolutionary time by that just replicate more of it type of thing. Okay, so let's uh, go beyond the human now and uh, talk about artificial intelligence. And um, before we talk about the risks or the imagined risks, tell me what you think the path looks like going forward. I mean, what are we doing now and what do you think we need to do to have our dreams of true artificial general intelligence realized? Well, uh, you know, today's AI, as powerful as it is and successful as it is, I think most senior AI practitioners will admit, and many of them have, that they don't really think they're intelligent. You know, they're, they're really wonderful pattern classifiers and they can do all kinds of clever things, but there are very few practitioners who would say, hey, this AI system that's recognizing faces is really intelligent. And, and there's a sort of a lack of understanding what intelligence is and how to go forward and how do you make a system that could, could solve general problems, could do more than one thing, right? And so in the second part of my book, I lay out what I believe are the requirements to do that. And my approach has always been, for 40 years, has been like, well, I think we need to first figure out what brains do and how they do them. And then we'll know how to build intelligent machines because we just don't seem able to intuit what an intelligent machine is. <laughs> so I think what I, the way I look at this problem, if we want to make, you know, what's the, what's the recipe for making an intelligent machine? is you have to say, what are the principles by which the brain works that we need to replicate and which principles don't we need to replicate? And so I, I made a list of these in the book, but they're, they're, if you can think of a very high level, they have to have some sort of embodiment. They have to have the ability to move their sensors somehow in the world. You know, you can't really learn how to use tools and how to, you know, run factories and, and how to you know, do things unless you can move in the world. And it requires these reference frames I was talking about because movement requires reference frames. But that's not a controversial statement. It's just, it's just a fact. You're going to have to have know where things are in the world. And, and then the final, there's a set of things, but one of the other big ones, which we haven't talked about yet, and which is where the title of the book comes from, A Thousand Brains, is that the way to think about our neocortex, it has 150,000 of these columns. We have essentially 150,000 separate modeling systems going on in our brain, and they work together by voting. And so that concept of a distributed hmm. intelligence system is important. We're not just one thing. We, it feels like we're one thing, but we're really 150,000 of these things. And we're only conscious of being one thing, but that's not really what's happening under the covers. So those are some of the key ideas. I would just stick to very, very high ideas. It has to have an embodiment. It has to be able to move. Its sensors has to be able to organize information and in reference frames, and it has to be distributed. And that's how we can do multiple sensors and sensory integration, things like that. Hmm. I guess I, I question the criteria of um, embodiment and, and movement, right? I mean, I, I understand that practically speaking, that's how a useful intelligence can get trained up in our world to do things, you know, physically in our world. But it seems like you could have a perfectly intelligent system, you know, i.e. a mind 
that is turned loose on, you know, simulated worlds and or are capable of solving problems that don't require effectors of any kind. I mean, the, you know, the yeah, chess I, is obviously a, a very low-level analogy, but just imagine a thousand things like chess that represent real, you know, theory building yeah. or cognition, you know, the, yeah. in a box. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. And, and so w- when I use the word movement or embodiment, and I, I'm careful to define it in the book because it doesn't have to be physical. It, you know, I, I, example I gave, you can imagine an intelligent agent that lives in the internet. And right. a movement is following links, right? It's not a physical thing, but it, there's still this conceptual mathematical idea of what it means to move. Yeah. And, so, and so you're changing the location of, of some representation. And that could be virtual. It could be, you know, it doesn't have to have a physical embodiment. But in the end, you can't you can't learn about the world just by looking at a set of pictures. <laughs> right. it, it, that's not not going to happen. You can learn to classify pictures, but so so some AI systems will have to be physically embodied, like a like like a robot, if I guess you want. Many will not be. Many will be virtual. But they all have this internal process, which we could I could point to the thing that says, "Here's where the reference frame is. Here's where your current location is. Here's how it's moving to a new location based on some movement vector." You know, like a verb and a word can you can think of that as like an action, and so you can have a, an action that's not physical, but it's still an action, and it moves to a new location in this internal representation. Right, right. Okay, well, let's talk about risk. I mean, because this is the place where I think you and I have very different intuitions. You, you are, as far as I can tell from your book, you seem very sanguine about AI risk and. Really, I, you seem to think that the only real risk, the serious risk of things going very badly for us, is that bad people will do bad things with much more powerful tools. So the heuristic here would be, you know, don't give your super intelligent AI to the next Hitler, because that would be bad. But other than that, the generic problem of self-replication, which you talk about briefly, and and we you point out we face that on other fronts, like with you know, with the pandemic we're, we, we've been dealing with. I mean, so natural viruses and bacteria or computer viruses. I mean, there's, a, there's anything that can self-replicate can be dangerous. But that aside, you seem quite confident that AI will not get away from us. That there won't be an intelligence explosion. And um, we don't have to worry too much about the so-called alignment problem. And at one point, you even question whether it makes sense to expect that we'll produce something that can be appropriately called superhuman intelligence. So perhaps you can explain the basis for your optimism here. So I think what most people, and perhaps yourself, uh, have fears about is, is they, they, they use humans as an example of how things can go wrong. And so we think about the alignment problem, or you think about you know, motivations of an AI system. Well, okay, uh, does the AI system have motivations or not? Does it have a desire to do anything? Now, as a human, an animal, we all have desires, right? But if you, if you take apart what parts of the human brain are, are doing, different parts, there's some parts that are just building this model of the world. And this is the core of our intelligence. This is what it means to be intelligent. That part itself is, is, is benign. It has no motivations on its own. It doesn't desire to do anything. 
I use an example of a map. You know, a map is a model of the world. And you can, a map can be very powerful uh, tool for some to do good or to do bad. But on its own, the map doesn't do anything. So if you think about the neocortex, on its own, it, it sits on top of the rest of your brain. And the rest of your brain is really what makes us motivated. It gets us, you know, we have our, 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 our good sides and our bad sides, you know, our desire to maintain our life and have sex and aggression and all this stuff. The neocortex is just sitting there. It's like a map. It says, you know, I understand the world and you can use me as you want. So when we, th- when we build intelligent machines, we have the option, and, and I think almost the imperative, not to build the old parts of the brain too. You know, why do that? We just, just have this thing which is inherently smart, but on its own doesn't really want to do anything. And, and so this is some of, the, some of the risks that come about from the people's fears about the alignment problem specifically is that the, the, the intelligent agent will decide on its own or decide for some reason to do things that are in its best interest and not in our best interest, or maybe it'll listen to us but then not listen to us or something like this. I just don't see how that can physically happen. And, and, and for people, most people don't understand this separation. They just assume that this intelligence is wrapped up in these, all, these, all the things that make us human. The intelligence explosion problem is a separate issue. I'm not sure which one of those you're more worried about. <laughs> yeah, well, let's, let's deal with um, the alignment issue first. I mean, I, I do think that's more critical, but let me see if I can capture what troubles me about this uh, picture you've painted here. I, it seems that you're, to my mind, you're, you're being strangely anthropomorphic on one side, but not anthropomorphic enough on the other. I mean, so like, you know, you, you think that, to understand intelligence and, and actually truly implement it in machines, we really have to be focused on ourselves first, and we have to understand how the human brain works and then emulate those principles pretty directly in machines. That strikes me as possibly true, but possibly not true, and I, if, if I had to bet, I think I would probably bet against it. Although even here, you seem to be not taking full account of what the human brain is doing. I mean, like, we, you know, we can't partition reason and emotion as clearly as we thought we could hundreds of years ago. And in fact, you know, certain emotions, you know, certain drives are built into our being able to reason effectively. I think that's, you know, I, I'll, I'll take an exception to that. I know, I know this is an opinion that you had uh, Lisa Barrett on your program recently. Yeah, like Antonio Damasio is the person who's yeah, banged I, on yeah, about this yeah. the most. Yeah, I, I know, and yeah. I, I just disagree. I just, it's, you know, you can separate these two, and, and I can say this because I understand actually what's going on in the neocortex, and I can see what I, I have a very good sense of what these actual neurons are actually doing when it's modeling the world and so on, and, and you do not, it does not require this emotional component. A human does. Now, you say, you know, on one hand, I, I don't argue we should replicate the brain. I say we should replicate the structures of the neocortex, right. which is not replicating the brain. It's just one part of the brain. And so I'm specifically saying, you know, I, I don't really care too much about how the spinal cord works or how, you know, the brainstem does this or that. It's interesting. Maybe I know a little bit about it, but that's not important. The cortex sits on top of an other structure and the cortex does its own thing and they interact. Of course they interact. And our emotions affect what we learn and what we don't learn. 
But it doesn't have to be that way in a, in a, in a system, uh, another system that we build. That's the way humans are structured. Yeah, okay, so I would, I would agree with that, except the boundary between what is an emotion or a drive or a, a motivation or a goal and what is a value-neutral mapping of reality. You know, I, I think that boundary is perhaps harder to specify than, than, than you think it is, and that certain of these things are connected, right? Which is to, I mean, here's an example. This is probably not a perfect analogy, but this gets at some of the surprising features of cognition that may await us. So we think intuitively that understanding a proposition is cognitively quite distinct from believing it, right? So like I can give you a, a statement that you can believe or disbelieve or be uncertain about. And you know, I can say, you know, there's two plus two equals four, two plus two equals five, and I can give you some gigantic number and say this number is prime. And presumably, in the first condition, you'll say, yes, I believe that. In the second, you'll say, no, that's false. And in the third, you won't know wh whether or not it's prime or not. So those are distinct states that we can intuitively differentiate. But th there's also evidence to suggest that merely comprehending a statement, if I give you a statement and you parse it successfully, the parsing itself contains an actual default acceptance of it as true, and rejecting it as false is a separate operation added to that. I mean, and there's, there's not a ton of evidence for this, but there's certainly some behavioral evidence. So if, you know, if I put you in a paradigm where we gave you statements that were true and false, and all you had to do was judge them true and false, and they were all, all matched for complexity, so you know, 2 plus 2 equals 4 is no more or less complex than 2 plus 2 equals 5, but it'll take you longer, systematically longer, to judge very simple statements to be false than to judge them to be true, suggesting that you're doing a further operation. Now, we can remain agnostic as to whether or not that's actually true, but if true, it's counterintuitive that merely understanding something entails you know, some credence, give, you know, epistemic credence given to it by default, and that to reject it as false represents a subsequent act. But like, that's the kind of thing that, you know, that already we're on territory that is not coldly rational. Some of the all-too-apish appetites have kind of crept into cognition here in ways that we didn't really budget for. And so the, the question is just how much of that is avoidable in building a new type of mind? Well, I, you know, I'm not familiar with that specific research, and so I haven't heard of that. But I, you know, it, to me, none of these things are surprising in any way. You, you just If you start thinking about the brain as basically trying to build models, it's constantly trying to build models. In fact, you're, as you walk around the, the, your life day to day, moment to moment, and you see things, you're building the model. The model is being constructed. Even like, where are things in the refrigerator right now? Your, your brain will update. You open the refrigerator, oh, the milk's on the left today, whatever. And so if someone gives you a proposition like two plus two equals five, you know, I don't know what the evidence that you believe it and then falsify it, but I certainly imagine you can imagine it trying to see if it's right. It'd be like me saying to you, hey, you know, Sam, the milk is on the right in your refrigerator. And you'd have to think about it for a second. You'd say, well, let me think. Okay, open the No, last time I saw it was on the left. You know, no, that's wrong. But you would walk through the process of trying to imagine it and trying to see, does that fit my model? And yes or no. And I, I don't, it's not surprising to me that it would 
that you would have to process it the way as if it was true. It's just a matter of saying, can you imagine this? Go mm. imagine it. Do you think it's right? It's not like I believed it. Now I falsified it. It's, it's well, more like- Well, well actually, I'll just give you one other datum here because so, it's just intellectually interesting and, and socially all too consequential. This effect goes by several names, I think, but it, you know, one is the illusory truth effect, which is even in the act of disconfirming something you know, to be false, you know, a, some specious rumor or a conspiracy theory, merely having to invoke it, I mean, to have people entertain the concept again, even in the context of debunking it, ramifies a belief in it in many, many people. It's just, oh, yeah. it becomes harder totally. to I, discredit things because you have to talk about them in the first place. Yeah. I mean, so look, we're talking about language here, right? Yeah. And in language, so much of what we humans know is via language. And we have no idea if it's true when someone says something to you, right? How, how do you know? And so you, it's, you, you have to, so, I mean, I, I gave an example, like, I've never been to the city of Havana. Well, I believe it's there. I believe it's true, but I don't know. I've never been there. I've never actually touched it or smelled it or, or saw it. So maybe it's false. Mm. So I just, I mean, the, this is one of the issues we have. I have a whole chapter on false beliefs because so much of our knowledge of the world is built up on language. And the default assumption under language that if someone says something, it's true. It's like, it's a pattern in the world. You're going to accept it. If I touch a coffee cup, I accept that that's what it feels right. like. And if I look at something, I accept that's what it looks like. Well, if someone says something, my initial acceptance is, okay, that's what it is. So, you know, and then it's the fact, well, if someone says something that's false, of course, well, that's a problem because... Just, just by the fact that I've experienced it, it's now part of my world model. And, I, and, and if that's what you're referring to, I can see this is really a problem of language we, we face. And this is, this is the root cause of almost all of our false beliefs, is that someone just says something enough times, mm. and that's good enough. <laughs> and, and you have to seek out contrary evidence, evidence for it. Yeah, sometimes it's good enough, even when you're the one saying it. You just overhear your, 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 the voice of your own mind saying it. And no, I know. That's, that's ever, it's been proven that everyone is susceptible to that kind of distortion of our beliefs, or especially our memories. Just remembering something over and over again changes it, you know? Yeah. Okay, so let's get back to AI risk here, because here's where I think you and I have very different intuitions. I mean, and the intuition that many of us have, you know, the people who have informed my views here, people like Stuart Russell, who you probably know at Berkeley. Yeah. And uh, Nick Bostrom and Eliezer Yudkowsky and just uh, lots of people in this spot uh, worrying about the same thing to one another degree. The intuition is that you don't get a second chance to create a truly autonomous superintelligence, right? Like it, it seems that in principle, this is the kind of thing you have to get right on the first try, right? And having to get anything right on the first try just seems extraordinarily dangerous because we we rarely if ever do that when doing something complicated um and another way of putting this is that it seems like in the space of all possible super intelligent minds there are more ways to build one that isn't perfectly aligned with our long-term well-being than there are ways to build one that is perfectly aligned with our our long-term well-being and you know, from my point of view, what, what you know, your optimism and the, the optimism of many other people, you know, who take your side of this debate is based on is a, it's not really taking the 
prospect of intelligence seriously enough and the autonomy that is intrinsic to it. I mean, if, if we actually built a true general intelligence, what that means is that we would suddenly find ourselves in relationship to something that we actually can't perfectly understand. It's like it will be analogous to a strange person walking into the room. You know, you're in relationship, and if this person can think a thousand times or a million times faster than you can, and has goals that are less than perfectly aligned with your own, that's going to be a problem eventually. We can't find ourselves in a state of perpetual negotiation with systems that are more competent and powerful and intelligent I, than I think, we are. I think, there's, I think there's two mistakes in your argument. Yeah. The first one is you say my intuition and your intuition. I think most of the people who have this fear have an intuition about what might happen. I don't have an intuition. I'm basing my argument here on very empirical knowledge and evidence about what I've learned about brains. I didn't start off saying, you know, I don't think this is going to be so bad. I said, let me figure out what intelligence is and how it works. And now I have a really good idea what's going on there. And now I can say, you know, given what I've learned, this is not my intuition. It's like, I can see what's going to happen here. The second thing is, but is I, I, don't, I don't understand that jump, though. I mean, I, I don't see how you... Because most, peop most people who are, who are fearful of intelligent machines have no idea what intelligence actually is. Well, but, they don't but we can see it, but they know, they know what it's like to they know, be, be in to relationship be, to entities that are, are intelligent to one or another degree that yeah, have they different know what it's like to be, goals. To be, and usually those are other people, right? Or, or, or usually, we, we know what it's like to be people in relationship to other animals, right? That we can. Okay, we other, can, other animals that have full brains, right? Again, Animals and humans have more than the neocortex. They have much more than they're 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 not just an intelligent system. They are biological systems yeah. with these these goals that have been evolved for you know over billions of years. And and so if you assume that intelligent machines are like people or animals, just bigger, faster, smarter, yeah, you're right. But they're not gonna be, which gets me to my second point. This is really hard to do, Sam. To build intelligent machines is not simple. It's going to take decades of hard work in engineering to, in, in science to do this. It's not something that's going to happen overnight. It's not something I'm going to flip a switch and all of a sudden, my God, we just released this thing on the world. It's a very difficult process. And everyone working on it is going to have to understand exactly how it works. Not intuitively, but exactly. You just, we don't build things based on intuition. We base them on very detailed knowledge. So this process of how we're going to go about building machines, it's intelligent machines. It's not going to run away from us. It's not going to be something that's going to surprise us. It's, we're not going to wake up one day and like, oh my God, this is things a million times faster than me. And, it, and people describe it that way. It's like, no, it's not going to happen that way. Well, and well so it's but not, you're, there you're, you're in, you know, I would argue somewhat intuitively closing the door to the intelligence explosion, which is, which is a separate problem. I'm not, I mean, we can, we can talk about that. Yeah, but. so yeah, that's right. We want to talk about that. Mm -hmm. I, I think that is a separate problem. And so we were just focusing on the, the issue of alignment, uh, yeah. alignment and, and, and lack of control, right? That's, uh, that's Stuart Russell's thing, you know, it's like, yeah. Well, so one thing you seem to be very confident about, I think you say it just squarely in the book, that a, any AGI we build, any artificial general intelligence we build, is not going to spontaneously produce new goals or motivations. But that seems to me precisely what 
human beings have done, and it's not, it's just not obvious that. But again, you're, again, don't confuse a human being with an AGI. Well, they're but, not the same. But again, we have a demarcation problem here. We, it, it's hard to know. No, it's, it's, it's not really hard to know at all. I mean, I laid out in the book a theory about how the neocortex works, how the cortical columns work, how they interact. We're still developing that. And I don't, that theory does not rely on any emotional content. It doesn't rely on any goals. It doesn't rely on any biological processes at all. It doesn't have to be encoded in a living machine. It's just a set of like, oh, here's what it means to understand the world. Here's how a system can understand the world and, make, and, and act upon it. But to want to act upon it, to have any that doesn't come with that reinforce but yeah but anything we're going to build is going to have goals because we'll give it goals it'll, it'll have initial yeah, right. goals so right right so will they be human like goals and how will they work that's and i said that i said look if 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 you if you went out of your way to recreate a system if you re went out of your way to recreate the entire human brain which is actually much harder then i would agree that's dangerous we shouldn't do that it's, i gave the example of a self-driving car right you could say, well, I have this really, you know, super duper self-driving car, but, and now I tell it where I want it to go. Would that car ever on its own to say, you know what? I know you said you wanted to go to the, the grocery store, but I don't want to take it there. I'm going to take it someplace else and I'm going to lock the doors and I'm going to prevent you from turning me off. And I'm going to do that. And of course, no one believes that would happen. But why? It's because we didn't build that capability into the car. We didn't build a car that says, hey, you know what? Accept the first command. But after that, you decide what you want to do. It's not going to happen spontaneously. The car isn't going to wake up one day and say, I don't like being a car. I, I want to do something well, else. But, no, but, but see, you're, you're reasoning from analogy to a, a narrow form of intelligence, you know, or, or you, know, you wouldn't even call it intelligence. But I might. Why not? But no, I, I mean, it's, Actually, I'm happy to call it intelligence, but it's, it's narrow intelligence that is, doesn't have the kind of autonomy and generalizability we're talking about. I mean, so you seem to be saying that we could build true AGI, shorn of any of the creaturely sins coming up from the old brain that could accomplish all the things we would want AGI to do, right? So we could- well, why, why, why? I disagree with that. I don't want AGI to do those things. Well, I don't want AGI to be a replacement for humans. No, no, well, whatever. Presumably, we're going to build this for some purpose, right? So, yeah. Yeah. you know, so whatever the purpose is, if we want AGI to keep watch on the climate for us, so that we- do whatever we need to do to not cook ourselves, we would put it in place. But you seem to think that by definition, it can't produce any surprisingly new instrumental goals or motivations that we couldn't foresee, right? But that it but, could, let's, let's, let's talk about what it could do. It could definitely discover new methods for achieving results. It could definitely, just like you and I do, we can look at some problem and say, you know, there's a solution here. I think I'm going to figure out that new solution. It could be very creative. It could come up with new things. But goals and motivations are things that require physical substrate. They're not, they're not you know, things in the ether. They're, they're things that require physical substrates. Those substrates in the brain, in our brain and other mammals' brains, are not in the neocortex. They're elsewhere. You mentioned earlier the, I think, the amygdala. Well, but, but not entirely. Well, that's, that's not clear to me. So some of the goals, I mean, many, I know, yeah. many of our goals, I would argue, have to be born in whole or at least in part from the neocortex, and they explicitly repudiate the older brain goals that are genetically encoded in us. I mean, just think of like 
a practice like celibacy. I mean, where the hell does that come from? That's that's a a meme that gets into your head through religion for the most part, and if sufficiently encoded there, it is a, just the living repudiation of everything your genes care about, and it goes against the grain of you know m- many urges and appetites and tendencies yeah. and. Yeah, and yet it, it can be behaviorally but I, but, effective. But by the way, cel- but celibacy solves others, right? Celibacy is, it may solve your desire for uh, a belief in God or or an afterlife, or maybe a celibacy is, is is something else that you care about that has other underlying goals. You know, I don't want anyone to get the idea that the neocortex is disconnected from the rest of the brain. It's heavily infused with the rest of the brain. Our emotional states can change what we learn and not learn. The, brain, the neocortex informs the old parts of the brain, like, what is it you're seeing now? Is this dangerous or not? So it's not, that's not, you know, there's this, it's not like there's this clear seal there, separation, but all the, you know, there's no evidence we have right now. You know, we, th- we think about like uh, the hormones or the, so the neuromodulators that are released on some of the uh, emotional states we have. They're not released by the neocortex, they're released in the neocortex. So there, there are cells in the old parts of the brain that will infuse in this stuff through the neocortex. So it's, it's, it's like you can remove that. You know, the guy, I forget, I forget his name, there's a, uh, but some of these people who do um, rock climbing, yeah, severe yeah. rock climbing. Alex Honnold, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. see the guy who did the half dome? Yeah, um, yeah the free uh, solo yeah. and his, his free amygdala solo, yeah. or... or yeah. Uh, yeah, right, right. So, yeah. Yeah, right. so, exactly. So, you know... He has a normal brain. He's got a normal neocortex. He understands the fear. I mean, not the fear. He understands the risks and the dangers. That's not something he doesn't understand, but he doesn't have the emotional component of it. He doesn't, he doesn't become well, frozen. Let's well, say that's, you're kind of making my point. It, one could argue that he actually doesn't understand the risks, and he's very likely to be dead the next time we talk about him, no, you, given you might, how he's living. No, my understanding, I haven't spoken to him personally, but my understanding, he says, I know this is dangerous. Well, he, he can he make he can he, make those mouth noises, but 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 he understands it. You can ask him why is it dangerous. He can tell you, I could fall, I could slip, I yeah. could do this, I could do that. These are all the things that could kill me. Yeah, but what he but understands what he can't, that. Yeah, but th- this is the thing. Like, the more we rely on AI to do things that matter, right? The more we will require it not to be morally insane. And, and so what, it, what would it mean to have a actual a wise system that we could rely on? And how much of what you're calling the old brain would need to be built into that? I mean, like what-, what... You have to do something. You have to have some goals and motivation. Even if I don't have fear, I, there's, there's rewards you get from climbing. There's the fame you get for it. Maybe you'll get more sex. I don't know. But there are rewards, and there's you know, the adrenaline rush, whatever. There are these emotional rewards you get. So he's trading mm-hmm. off one for others. So it's, it, these things just don't appear magically in an intelligent system. Now, they have to be built in. Right. A system without any goals has to have some built in. I gave the example, which you know, it sounds trivial, but I think it's a very good one about the self-driving car. It's going to have some goals. We're going to have to program those in. Uh, we're going to have to say what they are. Will they evolve on their own? Not unless we give it the ability to evolve on their own. Could we as humans screw it up? Yeah, we could, right? We could screw it up, but it's not, not in a way that all of a sudden we screw it up and the car says, I don't want to be a car anymore, you know? No, but we could, we could screw it up in, in ways that were 
would be unforeseeable in the particulars, even though generally we could be on our guard for this sort of thing. I mean, this this is something yeah, that's happening in narrow AI now with bias, yeah. right? Like you think yeah. you're you think you've got a melanoma detector, you know, for in your you know dermatology practice, but you know the machine learning algorithm has been trained on a hundred thousand photos of you know benign and cancerous moles, but it you know it just so happens that all the photos of cancerous moles often have rulers in them because people have yeah. wanted to know their size. And so it actually w- it became a, a cancerous ruler detector, uh, you know, in its first iteration. And that wasn't, you know, expected. So th- it, there's a self-driving component of that. I mean, we could have a, we could, we could have a self-driving car that is racist and we don't realize yeah. it, you know. So, so Sam, I, I made a very clear distinction mm-hmm. in the book. I said, I am not worried about the existential risk of AI. Right. I'm worried about every other risk. Yeah. No, I understand. Totally. That. I, but I, I'm right. So, I'm trying to push so, you. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to push uh, you yeah. into being less sanguine on well, the existential side. Well, we're talking about exist- existential risk means ending humanity. Yeah. Okay. It doesn't mean biased. It doesn't mean I totally a rule detector. Yes. Yeah. Right. It it means that this somehow we are going to end all human life on this planet. But and, but here's the thing that, that it seems like you're not granting credence to, and I don't see how you're closing the door to this. If we imagine building something that is, in fact, more intelligent than we are, and its intelligence continues to increase as we make improvements, you don't have to imagine an explosion, you just have to imagine continued progress, right? seems to me that, you know, unless, the moment you grant that intelligence is substrate independent, there's nothing magical about having a computer made of meat then you you have to grant that as long as we continue to make progress, we will eventually build something smarter than we are. Then the question is, how do you close the door to the expectation that something that is smarter than we are and faster than we are and getting smarter and faster, whereas we are staying as we are, that this thing will begin to develop interests and goals and conceptions of reality that exceed ours to the point where we really don't know what it's up to. I mean, just like, here's a, here's a, not a great analogy, but a, I think still an instructive one. I mean, we can imagine a world in which dogs invented people, right? They invented people in the hopes that they would take great care of them. And in fact, that's the way it worked out. I mean, we it has worked out great for dogs for the most part, you know, for now thousands of years. And we expend an inordinate amount of resources to make sure that our dogs are happy and healthy and, and well cared for. And, you know, our utility function is pretty clearly tethered to the well-being of our dogs, at least most of our dogs, most of the time. But the truth is, because we're so much smarter than dogs, they have no idea what we're up yeah. to. And but Sam, you made the same mistake I've I, I asked you not to make before, which is you're, they made, you're saying they made a human. But the crucial bit is they made us more intelligent, unforeseeably but, more but, intelligent. But, 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 but you're conflating intelligence with human. Well, and, well and no, I'm, just, I'm just saying that that's dispar- the bottom fall But there. No, but radical disparities in intelligence but let's mean, understand what it mean radical disparities in power and competence. And, but, but, and in, but, 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 but it's not a human. And, no, and so yes, look, I, let's hope I, not. I can, I can make a computer that's a million times faster than I am, that has a million times the capacity I am. 
It's not a threat to me. Well, no, but, you, but you can't make a you can't yet make a computer that can do. Again, I, I'm not I'm not saying that we we need build human like super intelligence. I think that would be a terrible idea. I mean, so I, I share your your assumption here that the safe way to do this is to make sure we don't build super intelligent apes, right, or super intelligent yeah. ape minds with you know high testosterone problems. That's not what we would do, but there's clearly a way to do that, and there's a way to do that by accident or to not foresee the degree to which you've done that until it's too late. And perhaps there's a way to escape all of those problems and build a mechanical angel, right, which would only be to the good, right? But And that's the, obviously, that's the version of AGI we would want to find. But all I'm arguing is that there have to be more ways to do this wrong than to do it no, perfectly. Just, well, there are ways to do it wrong, but they're not existential risks. And that's, that's the distinction, I think. But, but you're not, the, you don't seem to be granting the implications of being in relationship to something that is autonomous and more competent than we are. I am in the presence of those people all the time in my life. Well, no, but, many, but, but, but not, not by orders of magnitude. Well, 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 I don't know. You're, you're not talking to damn... someone who, who can, you know, for every second you're processing the conversation, they effectively have two weeks of processing time because they're a million times faster. Well, than you. Are, are we in some competition? What? Is there is there a, is there a, a, some a, some game that we're playing that I'm going to lose? Well, yeah. If your goals are not perfectly aligned, you, well, the competition right. well, is always so, waiting for so you. So the goal alignment problem is the one we have to address, not the speed of processing problem. But no, but it only becomes a, a problem because of the disparity in intelligence. If if you're you're, yeah. you're going to tell me that. AGI is going to have a an IQ in the end of 115. We don't have a problem, right? So let's let's so even the concept of IQ doesn't make sense in AGI. So we let's just, let's just say that let's just say intelligence is a process, almost like a mechanical process. You can define it. What it is, it's a memory system that builds a model of the world and then it figures out how to act on that model of the world. And if you say I want to accomplish A, it'll come back and say here's how you can accomplish A. I can make those systems bigger and faster and uh, more capable, mm-hmm. but they're not, they're just, they're just those things. I can make them faster. I can make them bigger. They don't run away. It's not like you can't all of a sudden know everything in the universe. I, I make this point very clearly. You have to learn about things. You can't just understand the nature of everything until you do experiments. So this, this system is, although it's faster and larger than us, it's not running away from us doing things. It's just like I can have a bigger computer and it's faster too. Well, well until now, maybe just there's a few wrinkles there. I, mean, I, I will grant you that yes, you could have a system that's a million times faster than us, but for in every place that it physically has to build something or do a physical experiment, things slow down impressively. Right? You can't. You don't get yeah. those million fold gains. But there are things that can happen in simulation, and there are things that can happen just by aggregating all the sum total of human knowledge up until that point and finding patterns that no human. Yeah, and that's what we, that's what that's what we humans try to do too, right? Yeah. We all look at we all look at the empirical data that people before us, and we try to come up with new patterns. So, like I guess it's so easy to slip from here's a process I understand how it works. Here I can build it, I can apply it to human good, to all of a sudden thing like, yeah, but we can't control it. Uh, you know, we, we don't know what it's going to do. Well, I know what a car is going to do. I know what a computer is going to do. 
I can't, I can't understand everything it's doing. I can't understand all the calculations that's going on inside. But those, those seem like bad analogies. I mean, what we're talking once Why? you, because once you get to the G in AGI, right? You're, you're then you're talking about, in principle, I think you're talking about autonomy and unforeseeable kind of migrations of of goals and and what kind and of auto- what kind of autonomy what kind of autonomy are you imagining well the autonomy that would be required to achieve true general intelligence well what that's that's a circular reasoning what what is that autonomy what does it mean to be autonomous it, it's exactly what it means in the case of anything we recognize to the degree that we recognize that a system is intelligent and we don't deprecate it and say well, that's that's not really intelligence. It's just you know, it's just pattern recognition, right? The moment you 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 begin to get away from it's not really intelligent to oh wow, this is this is better than human and flexible and learning in one area doesn't degrade its learning in another, and you know this is. But okay, well, know, that's an odd sense of autonomy. But well, well I no, think I mean, you uh, say but autonomy. General, but, I mean, ultimately, autonomy is. Exactly what we recognize in ourselves. I mean, you know, again, this is this is a concept that's a little hard to bound, and ultimately, it might be empty because you know, as you may or may not know, I, I don't think free will is a thing, right? So, like, I, I'm, a, oh, I'm I, yeah, I, I think I'm autonomous, but I don't think I have any free will. So that may sound like a paradox, but the point is that when you're in relationship to something that is has this property of general intelligence, you can't foresee exactly what it's going to do and it as a mind is capable of exploring landscapes of cognition and interest that you haven't explored yourself right i mean this is what it's like to be in relationship to other people well everyone does that we all explore things that other people haven't explored sure i think again but 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 this is but it's fundamentally unforeseeable i mean you just imagine what imagine what it would be like to try to explain to even a very smart person of you know a few hundred years ago what we're up to now, right? I mean, just you could yeah. take, I mean, take the smartest person, you know, go go back to Newton, right? Well, that's, I, mean, I think that's yeah, I think it's a great example because I think about it all the time. You take anyone from the last thousand years, they could be trained in today's society and be perfectly normal. There's, there's, there's no, we haven't advanced as a species since then. We just, but our, we haven't limited, figured out the limit of our knowledge yet. Yes, they, they could be trained. If if you brought Isaac Newton into the modern world, you could train him to be an effective, competent person in the modern world. But there's no way he could have foreseen. I mean, this is, this is a forecasting problem. You know, Newton, one, in one of his capacities, he ran the British Mint, if, if memory serves. And I think he had people hanged or decapitated for counterfeiting and he apparently was quite happy to do that but he could not have foreseen what we mean by bitcoin right i mean yeah. I, could, I could speak a single sentence you know is bitcoin going yeah, no, to replace right. fiat currency and that would not be parsable by newton and when you think of the amount so, of so, knowledge the yeah. kind of conceptual distance he but occupies think about this. from that concept imagine, imagine you're newton and now you have some you have some agent that you've created that can come back and tell you what the possibilities are in the future. Is that an existential threat, or is that something you would love to have? No, I'm just saying it's a failure of forecasting. It's like well, fine, but 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 so every, we can't. Uh, I mean, you're, but I think you're missing my point here. I'm just saying that Isaac Newton, the smart, arguably the smartest person who's ever lived, 
could not have told you what human beings just like him would do in the relatively near future with concepts with which he was intimately familiar. And what we're talking about now is forecasting that machines that are smarter than we will ever be or could ever imagine being, ultimately, we're saying that we can predict in advance that they won't form any kind of intermediate or instrumental goals or so, ultimate but, but goals that, that, that are antithetical to our well-being. Sam, just let's say you understand completely how that machine works, completely, end to end. You, uh, but even now we're building AI that we, where we don't understand how it works right, algorithmically. But, well, we, in some levels we do, in some levels we don't. But let's say we understand what it is, the mechanisms of intelligence. We understand what things can happen, what kind of advances can be made, and not like we know the future, but like this is how the system works. Mm. And, and, and I can say to you, okay, that's nothing like an animal. It has, it, and, and there's no place in this system for these goals to appear on their own. There just there is no place for them to appear. There's but you, no know, you know the cartoon, the cartoon objections to this is, yeah, you know, if, if you give it a goal, I mean, you have to give it a goal to do, to do, presumably you've built this for a reason yeah. and to accomplish yeah. your reason, you, you're going to give it a goal like, you know, self-driving car, get me to the airport as fast as possible. Well, it turns out as fast as possible is a bad goal because you're, you're going to get yeah. there having killed course, a few people it, and, and covered with vomit, right? So exactly, you have to right. modify that. But this puts the burden on us to but specify are, our goals but well. And, but and, it's, it, or no, it puts a burden on us to, to basically limit the capacity or the power of that system. The problem, and I use this example in the book, like we cars, my car follows my commands as I steer and press the accelerated pedal, but it will ignore them because we've built in safety guards that says, if you're about to hit something, mm. ignore what the driver says and do that. So we have to do those things too. Again, I want to make a real distinction between existential threats right. and just bad design, yeah, bad that outcome. can hurt hard, not just bad actors, but also bad design that can hurt a lot of people. Yeah, the no, no, yeah I, said, is, I said bad outcomes. Yeah, just, I mean, yeah, there's, oh, lo there's lots of pain so, we can cause ourselves without yeah. annihilating ourselves. Existential threats requires that, th that somehow we lose control of these systems. Not that they can't be smarter than us and they can understand the things that we don't understand. I would love to meet that person from the future to tell me about the future. I wouldn't view it as a threat. It's just, it only becomes a threat, you know, if, if we, it's, it's the fact that we, there's somehow that's gonna, something magic's going to happen that we don't anticipate. And all we can do is put a finger on it and say, well, you know, humans have been bad in the past too, or these motivations are going to evolve. But they don't just evolve. Everything has a system to it. There's, there's no, you know, that's your argument about free will, right? It's, it's, there's no magic here. And I think the people who are worried about exponential threats don't understand what intelligence is. And they conflate all these things that we think about humans and, and how we've treated animals and how we've treated other humans with what it's going to be like to have an intelligent machine. And I think it's much more like, you know, having a smart computer unless we put some bad things in it. And we can make computers bad too, right? We could put some bad things in computers just like we could make bad cars, but we don't do that. But, but, but I mean, just, I, just a, take the simple question of, of switching any future superhuman AI off, right? I mean, it's like, how could you be so confident that a, again, a true superintelligence would let us switch it off if being on is obviously a criterion for it satisfying any of its goals. I mean, unless its goal is only to be obedient to whatever we want to do in the moment, 
you can argue that switching it off is antithetical to whatever it was put in place to do. Yeah, but again, these goals have a physical manifestation, Sam. They're, they're, they're not just some in the ether. There's a physical manifestation yeah, for us. As they so do they in the case of people, right? I mean, or any, yeah, any right. physical so, brain. Yeah. So, so, you know, they don't go, they don't show up until we put them there. And, and that's why I use the example of, you know, like viruses. If someone wants to create a, a truly, you know, existential crisis, uh, I think you had Rob Reed on your yeah, show yeah. recently, you know, that's the thing we ought to be worrying about. Well, I, um, as, you, as you know, I am. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I know. So, um, I, I can multitask things, over here, Jeff. I've got because, s- several yeah, words. So, the, uh, yeah, so, so that's just something that has its own goals. We can't control them. It's self-replicating. You know, those are really, really bad. I, I think that in the future, we don't really know what the future of how humans will relate to AGI. In fact, the third part of my book is all about that. But it's, you know, we may decide we want to be subservient to them at some point in the future. The question is right now is, do we, are we at a risk in some sort of any kind of near term, short term, even somewhat long term? Well, risk? No, yeah, not for me. I, I, I have no time frame that I'm asserting. To, on my side of this argument. I mean, you could tell me this isn't going to happen for 100 years, and, and I'm fine with that, right? So, okay, well, I'm not assuming it'll happen within 100 years, but I'm just assuming that at some point, if we continue to make progress, and the, and the reasons why we wouldn't make progress are also dire. I mean, I think this is, you know, intelligence is the most valuable thing we've got, and we're going to keep building intelligent, intelligent machines unless we annihilate ourselves some other way. So on the assumption of progress, however incremental, eventually we're going to get into the end zone where we've not only passed the Turing test with our machines, but we're in relationship to something that is more powerful than we are. And that, well, that's we, the thing. We will, we will be there shortly. The question is, is it in a relationship where we are dependent and a relationship that we can't live without? And is it a relationship that we can't control? Hmm. I think we're going to build very intelligent machines within a few decades here. It'll be, it'll be the most important technology this century. Yeah. But I think we're much further away from a possibility that those intelligent machines, we lose control or they turn on us or anything like that. That's, that's, that's even much, much harder to do. It's not even easy to do. But why, why are you skeptical about, and this is, you know, I, I don't think we want to take the time to go, go into it deeply, but it seems like the, then there's an, some form of intelligence explosion in the offing, because I mean, once we build machines that are better at building machines than we are, then why not? We don't, why don't we just we turn don't them loose that. on that problem? It's not. It's not. That's a fallacy. Is it? Is it really we a fallacy? Why? Why would that yeah, be a fallacy? I'll, t- I'll tell you. I'll tell you why. Because when we understand how intelligent machines work, we can build them faster. I don't. I don't need the machine to build them faster. We can build them bigger. We've been doing that with all the technologies. We don't need someone else to come along and say, "Hey, I can make this, you know, faster or smaller or whatever." We're doing that anyway. And it's happening exponential rates. So this is, this is something that's already occurring. But that doesn't mean that there's an exponential growth in knowledge. It doesn't mean that at all. It just means I can make these machines faster and bigger. But they still have to learn about the world. And I point out there's many things you can't learn quickly. Um, they take time. And some you can. Like you could imagine a mathematician, an AGI mathematician, who could maybe solve all the great theorems that we want to solve very quickly. But for the most part, that's not really true. So the intelligence explosion idea that, that it's, it's not about how to build an intelligent machines it, it, that leads to, it's, it's about knowledge, which we have, that's exploding. 
It's not about how to, we can build really, really intelligent machines. I don't need someone else to do that. You can't make a machine more intelligent. You can just make it more capable, but it still has to learn and it still has to, you know, figure things out. It's, you can't just turn a switch and it says, oh, I know everything in the universe. Well, ex- except you, I mean, you acknowledge in your book the distinction between learning the old-fashioned way and cloning, right? So, I mean, any new machine we build will have the benefit of all of the learning that has yes. been already accomplished, yeah. and it just yes, it'll just download does, the, does. the next piece of firmware. Yeah, and we do too, except it takes us 20, 30 years to do it. Yeah. Um, so, um, that's not new. I just think that's a, that's a way that you could make a lot of intelligent machines very quickly, and it will accelerate the, the, the growth of knowledge. Again, I want to keep coming back to the existential risks here because I, I, I'm in many of these situations, I'm aligned with you. I'm thinking mm-hmm. like there's so many ways this could go wrong, wrong in like bad outcome. But again, this idea that somehow that we have to you know, stop thinking about these things or you know, put a control on this stuff because we're about to do something that we flip a switch and now it's too late, mm-hmm. that is a fallacy. It's not going to happen. Yeah, and I can well, say that. I don't think a, anyone. I don't think anyone is saying it's even an option to truly pull the brakes here. I just think that you know, people are pointing out that we're in some kind of de facto arms race condition now, where everyone's incentivized to just get to the end zone as quickly as possible, and we're competing with the Chinese and the Israelis and everyone else, and Facebook is competing with Google, and so you have this a system of incentives that are is not optimized to produce. A careful thought about what it would me- what it will mean to cross the final yard into the end zone here. Yeah, well, I mean, in large part, my book, the second part of my book, is is a, cor- a careful thought argument about this. And mm. um, you know, uh, maybe it didn't work for you, but um, but it, well, again, you, ju- you I just think- don't seem you just don't seem worried enough from for my taste. Uh, That's, uh, I don't know. I- admittedly, I guess- that that could be more old brain talking. Yeah, I mean, I, I my lack of. My worry about the existential risk, the, the lack of worry about the existential risk is based on what I've learned about what intelligence is. And I don't think the people who are having these arguments know that yet. They don't have this, it's sort of deep down understanding like what is an intelligent machine? What are the, the types that we might make? What are their capabilities? What do they do? What does it mean to be intelligent? You started with that to me with that question. Mm. What was my definition of intelligence? I have a very precise definition. Um, most people can't. Well, um, you may not like my definition. You may argue with it, but at least I have one. Well, but and, you, you have um, a de- you have a definition which, to be situated in the real world doing things, requires a few other pieces. Like it do- it does require a goal. It in the practical application it requires a goal, but but all the examples we've talked about so far. There is this complex milieu of, of human goals we've been talking about that, you know, uh, that we, we relate to human beings. But again, I give these very simple examples. You can give a car a goal, set of goals, and it's not going to start violating them. It's not going to create new ones. Hmm. We could give in a, super, a very intelligent machine some bad goals. You just make some weapon, you know, AI weapons and, you know, and go to this part of the world and kill everything you can find. Well, that would be really, really bad. And people could do that. And I think we have to be very careful about that. We have to be worried about that. Again, I'm only concerned about that all of humanity loses control and we are extinguished. Those are the things I logically, right. not intuitively, but logically have decided that's not going to happen. 
And, and I you, try to you, make don't, you don't see a do, do war. I don't recall if you touched this topic in your book, but you don't um, have a um, a marriage of AI and and uh, nanotech fear here. That like may, maybe the path that we'll one day take, or our machines will yeah. advise us to take, is using something like David Deutsch's universal constructor theory of you know building the smallest possible machines that are capable of building themselves and every other machine, and we build things no, I, of that, I in that there. way, and we have some, no. you know, some kind of gray goo that, that swallows everything, including yeah, wherever yeah, you are in, yeah. in Redwood City. Yeah. I, no, I didn't, I didn't touch on that topic. I felt that was a little bit too out there. Yeah. Uh, um, I mean, these are, these, I, I feel like the arguments that are being, that are being I'm not dismissing these arguments, first of all. I, I don't want to dismiss them. I want to bring rational thought to these arguments. I want to bring empirical evidence to these arguments. I want to bring. Here's what we've learned so far to these arguments. And, but then, you, and but, but really there, to my ear, you seem to be smuggling in a a time horizon, which is this is we're nowhere near accomplishing it. This is this is so hard to do, right? You, Sam, you no, don't realize no, how no, hard I, it is to build these things. No, but no, that's I not, think I that's think not the point. No, my argument. My, that's not. A, I think we're going to do this very rapidly, Sam. The question isn't. It's not. It's not whether it's hard to do. It's 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 it. it we have to go really out of our way. To put in the things right. that people are worried about, and we're yeah, not, and, and I think it's actually harder to build the old parts of the brain than the new parts of the brain. Okay, so that, that if true, that that would be the the guardrail that would be amazing to find and have confidence in that, that some principle that could convince us that we have to go out of our way to be stupid or malicious. There's nothing. There's no surprise factor here. In terms of you know building something that yeah. seems, but you know you, you get the thousand smartest people uh, looking at it every which way, and it seems totally benign, and yet surprise, surprise, it had some yeah. catastrophic. I think that's a good way. That's a good way of putting it. And and surprise comes about because you don't understand something. Now you may think it's hubris on my part to say, hey, we, we're going to understand this, but from where I'm sitting, we're going to understand it, and so we won't be surprised. The fear of surprise is because when you don't understand something. Then you can be surprised by how it works or what it does, but um, I think this is going to be an extremely well studied and understood phenomena, intelligent and intelligent machines, and there won't be that kind of surprise. I think we'll be far more surprised. Um, I mean, there will be some obviously every technology surprises you to some extent, but it'll be understood enough that these the, the existential risk fears will be pretty much in the insignificant category as from a surprise point of view. Hmm. Okay, well, let's let's end on a a grand uh, bargain and and promise that if either of us fundamentally changes our mind on this topic, we will alert the other and and explain the reasons why. So if you if you <laughs> okay, if you I'd ever start to, to sound like me, even in the privacy of your own mind, I want you to come back on the podcast and tell right. me what changed. You know, you know, Sam, I do worry about it a lot. I it's not like I dismiss this. I sit and think about it a lot. I mean, I, I don't want to do something stupid. I'm not a person who says, hey, technology is great. Let's do it. I'm very concerned about the future of humanity. And yeah. um, the third part of my book is all about the future of humanity. Yeah. And yeah. I want it to be a great outcome. I want my life to be contributing positive to that. And so it's not like I just dismiss this and have some sort of la-di-da attitude about it. I've thought a great, a great, great deal. And so have others. But I think what I can bring to the party is knowledge about what intelligence is and exactly how it works. And I think that has not been part of the conversation. And so that's what I'm trying to do in the book. Right. Well, um, 
It's been a fun and spirited exchange, Jeff. It's great to get you on the podcast, and obviously the conversation has just begun, so let's, um, yeah. let's keep this file open, yeah. and uh, I'll I'd... talk to you next time. Yeah, well, we'll see. We'll see how it turns out in a few years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah. One one of us is looking forward to it. Uh, well, I think <laughs> I think we I think we'd all be happy with a, a positive outcome. Yeah, no, I I, I agree. <laughs> if we can if we can do it right, I mean, the only thing scarier than building general intelligence is ultimately not building it. Right. So if we can do it right, yeah, it'll exactly. be the best thing. Ever. I mean, yeah. in the very in the end of the book, I I have a chapter called uh, "Genes versus Knowledge," where I make sort of the of the plea that we have to rethink what humanity is sometime. Not This is not now. Yeah. It's in the future. But, yeah. but you know, we are an intelligent species. Not about, That's what's unique about us, not our biology and our genes. And yeah. so we have to figure out how to preserve and create and propagate intelligence. And that may or may not be with humans involved. Yeah, we didn't, we didn't get there. <laughs> but um, it was a great, great conversation and uh, to be continued. It was fun, Sam. Thank you for having me.